to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Monies has an update on the state's delayed rollout of a new private school tax credit program. Paul, what happened with the online application portal? Yeah, so the, the enrollment period for this new tax credit uh, for private schools was supposed to open at uh, 8.30 a.m. on uh, December 1st. And in the days leading up to that, uh, there was some feedback the tax commission had gotten that um, some parents had some problems getting the official enrollment certification forms uploaded to the site to, to get ready for the application time period. And so uh, basically they paused that for a few days. All right. What was the tax commission's solution then? So this is a, a first come, first served uh, tax credit program. And they said basically in terms of fairness, uh, because there's a set amount that's uh, allowed every year uh, under this program that they basically said, we're going to pause it and kind of figure out the technical issues of the website and kind of come back in, a, in less than a week and kind of start the application process anew. What parents have to say about that? Well, yeah, I talked to some of them who had experienced some issues with this and they basically said that they had turned in uh, verification enrollment forms to their school who had in turn tried to upload them to the state's website that they were supposed to do that. Uh, they had some problems in either uh, small batches or large batches of applications from parents uh, on the verification side and basically tried to contact uh, the contractor, Merit International, the tax commission, the governor's office, all kinds of folks last week telling them about the problems. Now, how much did lawmakers dedicate to the program for 2024? Yeah, so this was a big deal in the legislative session this past uh, year, and basically lawmakers had capped it the first year in tax year 2024 at $150 million. That goes up to $200 million in tax year 2025, and then up to $250 million in tax year 2026. Now, the governor has been a big booster of this program. What did he have to say about this delay? Yeah, obviously his office had heard about this delay before the, the pause happened there. And basically he said it's it's good it's a good sign that the demand is, is strong like this. Uh, he understood the need to delay it a few days. Um, he also said basically that he's looking forward to seeing how many people are actually going to apply under this program and what new schools might come out uh, that may offer these these um, pr different options for, for parents that take advantage of this program. Now, you asked the governor if his family was going to apply for the tax credit. He's got uh, several children in private school, right? What did he say? That's right. Yeah, the governor has three children right now in, in kind of the K to 12 age groups. Uh, they're all in private school right now. He said that, yes, he will take advantage of it, but he knows there are some income limits on it. He says everybody knows what I make as governor, uh, but also um, he's obviously a successful businessman before he became governor and has income from other investments that probably still come into his household. But he said that every bit helps in terms of uh, getting his kids in those private school tuition situations. But he did note that there is income limits. Uh, it's a first come, first serve program, like I mentioned. Um, the first chunk of people that will get served are families with incomes of below $75,000 and then below $150,000 are kind of in a big bucket together. They will get the first chance at this uh, tax credit uh, in this tax year coming up. And basically everyone after that that has applied will get the, the, le the rest of the, the money for that year. Now, some Republican lawmakers who voted for the law have criticized the implementation. Uh, what changes do you think we're going to see uh, to that law next year? 
That's right. Yeah, this law was kind of um, a lot of negotiation in the session. Uh, the actual finished product, people were not 100% happy with, and it's actually run into problems on the, the rules side for the administrative side for the tax commission to do. Uh, basically, the biggest problem is aligning the school year, um, which obviously goes across several year, tax years. And so right now it's on basically just a tax year, which is a whole 2024 uh, calendar. Obviously, people were taking kids in and out of school at uh, different times of, of the school year. And so to align that is probably one of the biggest things that the lawmakers are going to try and tackle when they, they try and make fixes in this program next year. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's coverage of that tax credit and his other work related to state government. You'll find it all on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. He recently reported that Oklahoma's prison population is increasing after years of steady decline. Keaton, how much did Oklahoma's prison population increase over uh, the period this report covered? Yeah, so the Bureau of Justice Statistics put out a report last week that showed that Oklahoma's prison population grew 2.3 percent uh, going back to uh, late December 2021 through December 2022. Uh, so basically covering the calendar year 2022, um, it grew by 2.3 percent. Now, uh, according to that report, you know, Oklahoma uh, has ranked as high as number one in incarceration rate in the country. Uh, where does it rank nationally at the moment? Oklahoma wasn't number one as it was previously. Uh, it wagged number four uh, in the nation. So down a little bit. Uh, but uh, what's driving the growth in the incarceration rate? So a lot of what's driving that growth, uh, we saw in the report, it, it goes into detail as far as like who's being released, who's being admitted, new admissions into prison, who has uh, violated their parole or supervised release and is going back to prison because of that. Uh, the the percentage of those violations of, of parole uh, were up pretty significantly, about 14 percent. Um, admissions were up as well. Um, and, and some of that, you know, you talk to folks and, and that can sort of be attributed to the fact that um, COVID had an impact on the court system, that sort of thing. Um, but but overall, those pro probation parole violations uh, were, were driving a lot of the increase. Uh, despite the growth uh, revealed in that report, Oklahoma's prison population is still well below where it was five years ago, though, isn't it? That's right. It's still down about a little under 20 percent from where it was uh, around 20, early 2019, 2018, um, when it peaked. So going back over a five year stretch, it hasn't rebounded uh, from from that peak. Uh, but we're we're noticing an uptick after uh, some years of decline there. Well, maybe you can uh, remind us what some of the reforms were that helped the state reduce its incarceration rate uh, prior to 2022. The main one was uh, state question 780 that reclassified uh, several drug and property offenses from felonies to misdemeanors. Uh, voters approved that in late 2016 and that was implemented in early 2017 um, after a few years and uh, the legislature making that retroactive um, that really started to have an impact on on the prison population 
Um, there have been some other incremental changes um, aimed at, at helping the reentry process, that sort of thing. But that uh, certainly the big one there is the passage of state question 780 um, and that, that impact it's had on the state's incarceration rate. Oh, you wrote in your story that COVID-19 uh, had a significant effect on prison admissions. Can you elaborate on that a little? Sure. So at the, the onslaught of the pandemic in, in late March 2020, um, the Oklahoma Supreme Court actually ruled that district courts statewide should shut down. Um, and they were gradually reopened. Um, and as that process was continuing, uh, the, the process of resuming jury trials, that sort of thing varied from county to county. I believe Oklahoma County resumed jury trials in August of 2020. Um, so around that July, August, September of 2020 range is when those resumed. So that that sort of created a backlog. Um, and, you know, as as that had an impact on on cases moving through um, that that affected, you know, people going into prison as well as people maybe being held in county jail longer before being transferred to the Department of Corrections. So um we seem to, to sort of return to normal from that, but that certainly had an impact in 2020 and 2021. Now, looking a little bit down the road, do we see any pending legislation hanging around out there that might have an effect on on the state's prison population? There's been an effort over the past few years to create a crime, a felony classification system that would essentially reorganize, overhaul Oklahoma's criminal code and place every crime into a matrix that has uh, similar sentencing ranges based on a person's criminal history, um, that sort of thing. There was there was a task force that w- was created uh, several years ago to uh, make recommendations for this with the goal of it uh, keeping the prison population steady or uh, reducing it. Um, so that's that's been proposed over the past few years. It hasn't I, I, I believe in the last legislative session, it, it kind of sort of fizzled out in the last few weeks. Um, but that's certainly something that I'd expect to, to come back this year and that that could have an impact depending on the, the fine tuning of it on the state's prison population. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, all of Keaton's work about the criminal justice system and democracy on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, you'll also want to subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story details new expectations the State Board of Education placed on Tulsa Public Schools. Jennifer, uh, first tell us why the State Board is monitoring Tulsa's public schools. Sure. So this has been, um, since the summer, really, they have been closely monitoring the district. And this comes out of the accreditation process. Um, So last year, Tulsa Public Schools um, received a, um, you know, like a ding on their accreditation. They were downgraded um, due to a complaint under the House Bill 1775. Um, And so this year when they came up for accreditation again, the state board um, actually upgraded a little bit. Um, Their accreditation status improved, but a condition of that was 
that they would be closely monitoring them. The district would come and present to the State Board of Ed every month on their progress in academics and finances. How does uh, TELSA's accreditation compare to other districts? So accreditation in Oklahoma is on basically like a five-tiered scale. So there's five different levels. Um, If you kind of imagine it like a like a report card a through f um you know last year they would have been at a c which was accreditation with warning um and this year they're up to accredited with deficiencies which is the second level like a b um and there are you know 60 some other districts at that level so they're certainly not alone um it's it's not uncommon to have that status now you wrote that uh, state superintendent Ryan Walters and the board set out some new expectations for the Tulsa district, what was included? That's right. And this really came as a surprise to Tulsa school district leaders. I mean, they have been working with the State Department of Education trying to, um, you know, meet their um, their wants and their needs. Um, they have, the State Department has done over 100 site visits just this year alone. So they've been in the district regularly but still at this meeting, this this was a surprise. Tulsa leaders had already left the room and the board decided they would place three new expectations on the district. And those are, um, one is related to academics. It has to do with their reading and math scores on the state test. They want at least 50% or half of their students tested um, above the basic, um, yeah, the basic level. They also want all teachers trained in the science of reading 100% of teachers, even if you're a high school drama teacher, they want every single teacher trained in the science of reading. Um, and then they would like to uh, see 12 of Tulsa's 18 schools that are on this needs improvement list. They want at least 12 of those off, like improved enough to get off the list for next year. And, you know, in the the broader picture of things, how how reasonable or realistic are those expectations? I mean, that's definitely up for debate. You know, I talked to a a mom um, and a public school advocate whose kids are in, uh, whose uh, daughter goes to Tulsa Public Schools. Um, I think it's the, especially with her, the time frame is the most unreasonable part. I mean, the state board expects these things to happen by the end of this school year. That's a really tall order. I mean, changes in education don't, often come that fast, right? Um, so I think that's the the biggest hurdle. Um, you know, whether or not 50% of kids can be proficient, you know, that's that may be reasonable. It may not. I mean, I asked um, Superintendent Walters after the meeting where he came up with these. Um, and it, it wasn't really a, a question that he answered. I mean, he said some other Um, states include these types of measures in their accreditation, but didn't say exactly like how he decided that it needed to be this percentage. Now, all this comes after uh, Tulsa Superintendent uh, uh, Deborah Gist um, resigned a few months ago. Is the district considering other big changes in the wake of all that? They are. I mean, not only are they um, doing lots of things to try to get their reading scores up and their, um, you know, academics improved, but a couple other things were mentioned at this um, meeting recently. The district is considering closing schools. 
Uh, that was a little bit of a bombshell, you know, something we hadn't heard previously. It's um, something that the uh, that Ryan Walters and the State Department is encouraging or pushing the district to consider and to look at. Um, and and they're also looking at making some personnel changes, some of the high level leadership in addition to Deb Gist. I mean, that was the that was the first big uh, move that the State Department um, and and Ryan Walters really um, insisted on. Now, how much are those changes being driven by uh, Walters and his administration versus within the district? It really seems like these are uh, led by Walters. It, it does. I mean, the the district, I think, just from watching their presentations and listening to them, um, they seem like they're really trying to, um, you know, meet their demands. But it, I feel like they're definitely department led. Now, you wrote that Superintendent Walters wants the academic expectations that he set for Tulsa uh, to apply to all schools as part of their accreditation. Uh, what did he say about that? Right. So this is something he mentioned um, in in the meeting and also after the meeting uh, when reporters were able to ask him some questions. Um, he wants this as part of accreditation for all schools. Um, the 50%, uh, you know, at basic or above in reading and math and um, or in, uh, 5% improvement. So if you're below 50%, as long as you improve 5% per year, um, that is something he wants to include in accreditation. And, uh, you know, typically in Oklahoma, accreditation has been more used for, health and safety type of regulations or like, um, you know, laws, financial, you know, protection laws and things like that. It's more of a compliance thing for schools. And then we use our A through F report cards to assess academics. So this would be a big shift. How uh, does Walters plan to implement those proposed changes? So in order to do that, I mean, it would probably, I think he's going to use the administrative rules process like he's used in several other areas. He's going to propose some rules. They're going to be open for public comment. And then if the board approves the final version of those rules, they would go to the legislature um, and the governor and see if they will approve those. But traditionally, I mean, the legislature is the one that has um, really kind of outlined how we um, how we measure schools' success. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's coverage of education in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oh, friends, it's that time of year. November and December is our big fundraising push at Oklahoma Watch. We are a 501c3 nonprofit independent news organization that brings you investigative and explanatory reports from all over Oklahoma. And in November and December, we have an opportunity to triple 
Any donations that come our way, the Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar. And this year, we're delighted to say the Arnall Foundation here in Oklahoma is doing the same thing. So any donations at all, every dollar we get in turns into $3, which helps ensure our success in 2024. So we can keep bringing you all that in great investigative work. If you'd like to donate and support the cause, if you enjoyed the podcast, our website, our newsletters, our radio pieces, please visit our website, oklahomawatch.org. Click on the support us tab on the menu and know that every dollar you are able to give is going to be tripled. That's also true if you make a year-long pledge. If you pledge $10 a month, that counts as $120 toward the matching gifts. So your $10 a month turns into $360. Multiply that out any way that makes sense to you. We rely on the support of our readers and listeners and greatly appreciate your help. Thanks for listening. Newsmatch runs through December 31st. We greatly appreciate every bit of support.